I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 22, The Florentine Republic. The liberty of this city appears to be all the more secure, the broader the belt of free peoples surrounding her. Therefore, everyone ought to be convinced readily that the Florentine people are the defenders of the liberty of all peoples, since defending them, they also make the defense of their own freedom less difficult. Colucci Salutati, Letter to the City of Lucca, 1374. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. I had initially thought I could cover the crisis of 1402 in one episode, but as I dug further into the background of the conflict between Milan and Florence, I realized that this was going to take more than one episode to cover the main thread adequately. Last episode, we focused more on the rise of the Milanese state. In this episode, we will look at the political situation during the 14th century, but this time it will be from the perspective of Florence. Both these episodes will provide the background to the Milanese-Florentine War of the 1390s and the Crisis of 1402. If Milan can be considered the model despotic Renaissance state, then Florence, due to much of her own propaganda, can be viewed as the ideal of Italian civic liberty and republicanism. Of course, this ideal is only sometimes aligned with reality. Venice, the other great power in northern Italy, had no genuine interest in the affairs of the mainland peninsula. Instead, she focused her energy on her expanding overseas commercial empire. The Venetian Republic, safe among her lagoons, remained aloof through much of the 1300s, except for a few occasions. Therefore, it fell to Florence to actively oppose the expansion of the Milanese state. In the first half of the Trecento, Florence still regarded the world as the old divide between Ghibelline and Guelph. The Florentines saw the rise of Milan under Archbishop Giovanni Visconti, the grandfather of Gian Galeazzo, in terms of a rising imperial-backed monarchy centered in Lombardy. The Visconti were the appointed vicars of the emperors and the leaders of the Ghibelline party in Italy. Posing Milan was the papacy, still held captive in Avignon. Adhering to her Goelf sympathies, Florence felt it was her obligation to defend the church against Milanese imperialism. 
So when Bologna temporarily fell to the Milanese in 1350, Florence justified her support of the Bolognese for this reason. Not because of Milan's threat across the Apennines, but because Bologna was part of the papal domains. But it was becoming evident that the interests of Florence as a city-state were no longer identical with those of the church. Florence began questioning whether the old allegiances would still be counted on to help against Ghibelline Milan, or would Florence have to face the Milanese threat alone? The answer occurred in 1350. After Bologna surrendered, Milanese troops entered Florentine territory. Neither the papacy nor any other Goelf-aligned state came to their assistance. As the popes regained control of the papal states, Florence grew to realize that the papacy in the south posed as much of a threat as Milan to the north. This moved Florence to avoid any league or alliance on either side of the old Ghibelline and Goelf divide. This policy of inaction during the 1350s had its risks. This left the Visconti free to court Florence's enemies south of the Apennines. The appearance of Emperor Charles IV on the peninsula loomed large as well. By 1366, this forced Florence back into making a new defensive alliance with the papacy. The old Goelf ideology was once again revived and influenced Florentine policy. But this would be short-lived. A Florentine papal victory over Milan meant eliminating one of two rivals for power in central Italy. A diminished Milan only meant a more dominant papacy. Therefore, as of 1368, Florence retreated back into neutrality and inaction. The vacillations of Florentine foreign policy during the middle decades of the 1300s were mainly endemic to the republican nature of the Florentine government. In the 12th century, Florence threw off the yoke of the imperial-backed Marquess of Tuscany and established itself as an independent commune. From this emerged the Republic of Florence. From 1250, the Signoria became the supreme executive body to rule over the city. The Signoria was comprised of nine members, the priors. In medieval Florence, there were three classes of guilds. The seven greater guilds, the Arti Maggio, these were the lawyers and related professions, merchants, wool manufacturers, bankers, silk weavers, medicine, and furriers. The five middle guilds, the Arti Median, butchers, blacksmiths, shoemakers, stonemasons, and woodcarvers, and linen manufacturers. The nine minor guilds, the Arti Minori, vintners, innkeepers, tanners, olive oil merchants, saddlers, locksmiths, armorers, carpenters, and bakers. It was from these guilds that the priors were selected. 
The city was divided into four districts, and two priors would be elected from each district. The ninth member was elected as the standard bearer of justice. The names of members of the guilds were placed into eight bags, kept in the Church of Santa Croce. From these bags, the names of potential priors were drawn. A man needed to be 30 years of age, financially sound, not have served in a recent post, and not related to anyone else who was chosen. Once elected, priors served for two months and moved into the Palazzo del Signoria, which would later be referred to as the Palazzo Vecchio. The Signoria consulted with two other government bodies, the Council of the Twelve Good Men and the Council of the Sixteen Standard Bearers. These three groups made up the Tre Maggiori and represented the core decision makers. Specialized aspects of administration fell to commissions and committees. Some of these served for short periods and in times of emergency, such as the 10-man warfare commission. Legislative power resided in two councils whose members were selected by the Signoria. First was the Council of the People, with 300 members. Second was the Council of the Commune, with 200 members. These bodies could not initiate a legislation. They simply voted on proposals made by the Tre Maggiori. A two-thirds majority was necessary to approve laws. This whole government structure was created to prevent power from being concentrated in the hands of one or a few men. This revolving door could function because of the professional class of notaries that served in the government. These notaries did not fit our modern sense of bureaucrats. Most were part-time, and turnover was the same as in other public offices. Notorial offices became increasingly specialized over the 14th century. The system worked, though, because while the offices were specialized, the functions performed by the notaries did not vary. Basic procedures, such as recording of deliberations or accounting for money, were standardized throughout the government. Therefore, if one had a passing knowledge of law and administrative practices, one can move in and out of different positions and still keep the government running smoothly. Two positions were an exception to the general character of the notarial office. These two positions tended to be occupied by the same individual year after year. These were the notary of legislation and the chancellor of the republic. The notary of legislation concerned itself with internal affairs, while the chancellor oversaw matters related to foreign relations. Both of these were appointed by the Signoria and the other two councils. Though this was, in theory, an annual election, the Signoria 
tended to reconfirm the same individuals. Tenures of 20 to 30 years were not uncommon. So here I will introduce Coluccio Salutati, who served as Chancellor of the Republic in the last quarter of the Trecento and would be an essential figure in the coming conflict with Milan. Salutati was born in 1331 in Stignano, a small commune near Bajanio, Tuscany. He studied in Bologna, where the family had fled after a Ghibelline coup. The family eventually returned to Bajano, which had become a part of the Florentine Republic. He worked as a notary and came in contact with noted early humanists such as Boccaccio and Petrarch. In 1367, he was appointed Chancellor in Todi. He served as an assistant in the Papal Curia under Pope Urban V, which provided him the connections to secure the Chancellorship of Lucca in 1370. Lucca was one of the major powers in Tuscany, but suffered from constant factionalism. Salutati would lose his post due to this, but found himself appointed Chancellor of Florence in 1375. Salutati was one of the leaders of the humanist movement in the generation after Petrarch and Boccaccio. In this role, he made humanism fashionable and helped establish Florence as the cultural center of Italy. As a notary, Salutati drew upon the classical traditions of Virgil and Cicero. I have always believed, he said, I must imitate antiquity not simply to reproduce it, but in order to produce something new. He amassed a library of 800 books. One of the most important items in this collection was Cicero's lost letters to his friends. These would serve as Salutati's inspiration and be his standard. He frequently cited Cicero, thus earning him the nickname Ape of Cicero. In his role as Chancellor of Florence, he oversaw the diplomatic correspondence of the city. As such, he made contacts throughout Italy and became both a source of information and a model. He would influence the next generation, men like Bruni and Bracciolini. Unlike Petrarch, Salutati believed in an active life. He had a professional career as well as being politically involved. His skill lay in his ability to apply the humanist art of rhetoric to the job of making political decisions. His learning was not simply an ornament, but a key to his success. His understanding of ancient and recent history counted for his political strength. In the coming struggle with Milan, his correspondence would serve as propaganda for the cause of political liberty over tyranny. Gian Galeazzo Visconti would remark that one of Salutati's letters could quote, cause more damage 
than a thousand Florentine horsemen. End quote. But Salatati's first test as chancellor would not be Milan, but the papacy. Part of the condition of the papacy's return from Avignon was the expansion of the papal states in central Italy. In 1372, Florence feared that Pope Gregory XI meant to retake territory that Florence had captured from the Visconti. The Pope, on his part, resented Florence's lackluster support against the Visconti. When the Pope's war with Milan ended in 1375, Florence suspected him of turning his military toward Tuscany. In preparation, the city bought the services of the English mercenary John Hawkwood, who had recently been the Pope's leading commander. Florence sent agents across the Papal States to help stir up revolt. Salutati portrays Florence as a defender of civic liberty against the tyranny of Milan and the papacy. His letters urged the other Italian cities to rebel against the corrupt papal rule. In a reversal of the old Ghibelline Goelf hatred, Florence allied with Milan against the Pope. The Signoria appointed an eight-member committee, the Atto della Guerra, to oversee the prosecution of the war. This committee would be called the Eight Saints, and the war would be known as the War of the Eight Saints. In response, Pope Gregory XI excommunicated the government of Florence and placed the city under a papal interdict in 1376. This banned Florentine participation in Catholic rituals and services and allowed for the arrest and confiscation of Florentines and their property throughout Europe. On the other side, the Florentine government would force the clergy of the city to resume services. Local church authorities began leaving the city, but the Signoria imposed heavy fines and confiscations of church property for those who left their posts. In 1377, papal army invaded Tuscany and attempted to quell the rebellion. Meanwhile, Gregory XI returned to Rome to reclaim his possessions, thus ending the Avignon captivity, but he would die a year later in 1378. The war ended in 1378 with peace being concluded between Florence and the new Pope Urban VI. With the papal threat neutralized momentarily, Florence turned her attention back to Milan. She saw her fears come true with the growing power of Gian Galeazzo Visconti, even if the rest of the peninsula did not recognize it. The 1380s, though, would be a decade of setbacks for the Republic, including the fall of Padua and Siena putting herself in the Milanese camp. Florentine policy included continuing to put pressure on Venice to become more of an active partner in checking the Milanese expansion. The city sought to reconstruct older Tuscan-wide alliances 
by making concessions over territorial disputes with her neighbors. Alas, none of these diplomatic efforts proved fruitful. War seemed all but inevitable as the Pisan mediated agreement fell apart in 1389. As the 1380s ended, the councils of Florence debated what needed to be done to counter the expansion of Milan. Many felt that Gian Galeazzo's intentions of subjugating all of Italy were evident. According to Leonardo Bruni's account, Giovanni Ricci warned that it was now time to rise up and start thinking about the defense of your liberty. We must strive with our money and our arms and our councils not to lose the glory left us by our forefathers. Then Ricci offers up what they must do. First, they must resist being deceived by the Visconti's fictitious words and mild continence. His intentions are hidden deep within him, and his true will is buried and disguised. Second, he urged troops to be made ready to resist any sudden and unexpected attack. Lastly, they should ensure to retain the friendship of all our neighbors. Neighbors can give or take away the capacity to cause harm from those who wish to do so. I think the Bolognese should be given aid and kept in the alliance. The city councils gave Ricci their approval and supported his plan of action. Thus Florence prepared to meet the threat posed by Milan. So in the 1370s and the 1380s, Florence fed off the husk of the medieval Goelf ideology. In its place, there slowly grew a political philosophy centered on civic freedom and the independence of the central Italian states. In the next episode, we will look at the Milanese-Florentine War in detail, culminating with the crisis of 1402. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also help support this podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash I take history. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening.